If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27, the title of our lesson this morning is A Biblical Soap Opera. A Biblical Soap Opera. I'm going to confess something. It's a little embarrassing. When I was about 16 or 17 years old, I worked uh, at a lumber yard, uh, uh, Pygott's Cash and Carry. How many of y'all remember where Pygott's was down there? I worked there during the summers, and my lunch hour, I'd rush home, and I'd turn on Young and the Restless while I ate my lunch. I I don't know what was wrong with me back then. I got hooked on it for about a summer, and then I realized, you know, I've watched this thing the whole summer, and I think they moved the they moved the plot line about an inch, right? And so I got out. I bring that up because, um, you know, drama is fine for entertainment. I mean, we all like to watch dramas on TV and be entertained, but hopefully, in your personal life, like me, you dislike drama. In fact, I detest drama, especially in the home. To me, the home should be a place where, I mean, you're always going to have some level of drama in the world, on your job and, and in places like that. But to me, when you go home, uh, that should be a place uh, of love and, and peace and contentment um, and safety. It should be drama. It should be a drama-free zone. Does that make, does that make sense? Um, but now that, unfortunately, let's be realistic, that is often not the case. Uh, in our homes, we have a lot of drama. And, and the reason for that is because y- usually when you find drama, you'll find somebody doing it my way instead of God's way, right? You, you make a choice to do things your way, and let me tell you, drama will uh, follow. And that's exactly what we're going to see uh, in today's uh, chapter. We're going to see people doing things their way, uh, you know, trying to, trying to make things happen, and drama is gonna gonna follow. So I, I decided. Well, since we're kind of, I've, I've entitled this a biblical soap opera. We'll divide this into different scenes. And so, scene one, I'm gonna call the uh, the conspiracy. Okay. So let's start in Genesis 27, one through four. It says this: When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, "My son." And he answered, "Here I am." He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, there are are going to be four people in this story. Um, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob. And, and most of us look at Isaac as kind of the sympathetic character. We look at him as, well, he's the old guy, right? He's, but, but let me tell you, Isaac is not that sympathetic in this story. He's got his own issues and his own problems. And we'll see this as we, as we move ahead. Now, there's four things that come to my mind when I read those verses. First, you'll notice this sense of urgency, right? I mean, let's be honest, uh, when you first read it, you get the idea that, that he's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, right? I mean, I'm about to die. So he wants to give this final blessing. Now, some commentaries, and I won't go into all this, but they say that Isaac right here is probably about 137 years old. So he is old, okay? And we know he's nearly blind. He can't, he can't see worth, worth anything, 
But it turns out, by the way, that he will not die until he's 180. He's not going to die till chapter 35. So I'm not sure what's going on here, but he's not close to death. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't feel like he's close to death. We, we hear stories all the time where someone gets sick and someone's really down and they think, man, I'm fixing to die. Everybody thinks you're going to die and they live 30 more years, right? So that does happen. So it very well could be that the urgency here is because he thinks he's about to die. Or it could be that he's just anxious to bless his favorite son. The second thing besides urgency that I see is secrecy, okay? Normally, this is, think about this blessing as kind of a final will and testament. In fact, that's really what it is. It's like an oral will. It's where the, the father or the, the patriarch calls in the family and he kind of says, hey, this is what I want to happen. And he gives this final blessing. For example, if you go look at Genesis 49, you'll find Jacob with all of his 12 sons. He brings them all in. The whole family's there and, and he blesses them, um, all of them. But normally this is done in the presence of the entire family, but you'll notice here Isaac is doing it only with Esau. In other words, it is a secret conversation, okay? Now, this is not an oversight on Isaac's part. We think it is. We think, well, you know, he's just trying to bless his son. No, he, he is going out of his way to do this very secretly. The fact is he does not want Jacob and he does not want Rebekah in the room. Now you may say, well, how do you, how do you know that? Because he intends to give Esau everything and he intends to give Jacob absolutely nothing. Okay? Now, how do you know that? Because remember, we, I'm sure you guys know the story, right? He's gonna bless Jacob thinking it's Esau, right? And later Esau's gonna come in the room and he's gonna say, bless me, father. And Jacob's, and Isaac's gonna say, what? I ain't got nothing. I gave it all to him. See, that was his intention from the start, is to give everything to Esau and to give absolutely nothing to Jacob. So he has this kind of clandestine meeting with Esau, says, man, go get me, bring it in, I'm going to bless you. He doesn't want Jacob there. I mean, he doesn't want uh, uh, Jacob and Rebekah in the room. He, he's going to take care of this with Esau all, all on his own. Now, I've called this scene a conspiracy. Now, why would I call it that? Uh, is it just because of the urgency? Is it just because of the, the secrecy? No. If you look at the definition of a conspiracy, it's a secret plan to do something unlawful or harmful. Well, what is it that he's trying to do? Why would this thing he's trying to do be a, be a bad thing? Well, let's go back for a minute. Do you remember God's revelation to Rebecca? Remember in Genesis 25, uh, the, the two the two boys are kind of wrestling and fighting in her womb, and, and she comes to God and says, man, what in the world is going on here? And God comes to her and says, there's two nations uh, in there, two, two boys, and the older will serve the younger, right? Now, he tells her this before these boys are even born. Now, it is inconceivable to me that Rebecca didn't tell that to Isaac. Right? That would make no sense to me. After all, she loves Jacob, right? She wants Jacob to be the heir. She wants Jacob to get all that's coming to him. How would she not go to her husband and say, Hey, God told me that Esau is going to serve Jacob, right? I mean, it would make, it would make no sense at all that she hadn't told her husband 
about that visit from God. It's also, by the way, very hard to imagine that Isaac was ignorant of the fact that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Things like that just, I mean, we all know, right? You can't keep secrets. You just can't keep secrets. Things get out, right? Jacob's going to tell his mama, well, Esau sold his birthright to me. Well, she's going to tell Isaac or somebody in the house. It's just inconceivable that Isaac wouldn't know about these two things. By the way, in addition, we know Esau has married two Canaanite women. Not just one, but two. And Isaac knew about all of these things. By the way, any one of which would have disqualified him from spiritual leadership. Any one of those things, the fact that he sold his birthright, the fact that he, that he married uh, the two uh, Canaanite women, and the fact that God had told Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger, any one of those three things would have disqualified him from receiving the Abrahamic blessing. But the fact is, Isaac doesn't care about any of those things. See, what this, what, if, you, if you understand all this, it puts what he's doing in a very different light. See, it is a premeditated plot to thwart the plan and the purpose of God. God has said the older will serve the younger. Isaac says, no, I'm going to bless Esau. I don't care that he's married two Canaanite women. I don't care that he sold his birthright. I don't care that God has prophesied that he won't get it. I'm going to do it. Okay? Now, by the way, that makes Isaac just like us. See, the fact is, this shows us how a person no matter how clear the Word of God is about something, if they want to do it, they're going to do it. Yes or no? I don't care what the Word of God says. If they want to do it, they're going to do it. You take a woman or a man that's made a decision, they're going to divorce their husband, they don't love them anymore, they don't love their wife anymore, whatever the case may be, you can open that Bible and you can say, right there it says, do not do it. And if they've made up in their heart and made up in their mind they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Isaac is no different. See, he knew what God had said. He knew Esau was disqualified from it, but he didn't care because he loved that boy. And he wanted to make sure that Esau got what was coming to him. Now, scene two. I'm calling this the counter-conspiracy. Jesus said this, If you live by the sword, you will what? Die by the sword. Boy, this is, this is really illustrated in this. You see, Isaac thought, I can get around all this by a little bit of secrecy, a little bit of urgency, a little bit of conspiracy. But see, God knew a long time before, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you want to fight fire with fire, I'm going to give you a woman that's way better at it than you are, son. I mean, he was an amateur compared to uh, Rebecca, And this woman was a master manipulator, okay? Let's look at verse 5. It says, Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Now, this isn't an accident. This isn't a, a happenstance where she just happens to be walking by the door. The, the Hebrew, if you go back and look at the Hebrew form of the verb, it, it lets us know that this was a habit, that this was a, a pattern of behavior. She was, a, she was an eavesdropper, right? She always had her ear open to know what was going on in the in the house and so she didn't nothing happened in that house without her knowing uh, what was going on look at let's read verses five through seven so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it Rebecca said to her son Jacob I heard your father speak to your brother Esau 
And he said, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. So, so you can kind of almost see this as just like a soap opera, right? Like one person leaves and immediately somebody else walks in the other, the other door. I mean, Esau has barely left the house, right? Um, when Rebecca's already got the wheels in motion to, to overthrow this conspiracy with one of her own. And it is a, it is a, I hadn't quite figured out if it's a desperate plan when, when you, when you put your son, you put goat skin on him. I don't know if that's just desperate or devious. I hadn't quite figured out. Uh, which one it, one it is. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. So this is her speaking to uh, Jacob. She says, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them uh, from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So this is what this is all about is, is getting this blessing. Now, I want you to look at Jacob's objections, which are important. Verses 11 and 12. Jacob says to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Okay. Now, what I want you to see about Jacob's objections is they're not moral in nature. In other words, Jacob doesn't say, no, mama, that's not right, what you're trying to do, right? He doesn't say that at all, does he? His objections are all about the plan. Well, that can't work, or what if it fails, right? It's all practical, has nothing to do with morality, okay? Again, this is an example of what we saw with Lot several weeks ago, what I call practical morality. In other words, in certain situations, Listen, you've you got to throw your morals out the door and just, you got to be practical. And that's kind of what he's doing here. Man, i got to get that blessing and, and I just, I need to throw it all out the door and I'm just going to... So his objections have nothing to do with that's right or that's wrong. It just has to do with, I don't think that can work or what if it fails, right? So again, I want you to notice that. Now I want you to look at Rebecca's answer, verses 13 and 17. So his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and he took them and he brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house. And she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put delicious food in the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Now... So you saw what she did, right? She took the goat skins and she wrapped them, made him some gloves of some type. And she put it on his neck up in this area where, you know, where it would be smooth and if he felt it would be hairy and she prepared the goat and all this. Now, it is very difficult for me to conceive that this is something that she just thought of on the spot. I mean, that would be pretty devious if she could just come up with stuff like that. I think she was a planner. I think she had been thinking about this for quite a while. I think she had certain contingencies uh, probably in place, and she was, she was ready to go. One commentator pointed out, and I don't know about this, you know, Esau, by the way, <clears throat> has been married now for about 37 years. So is he living in the home? If he's living away from them, where does she get his clothes? I mean, is she, has she been ready? Or, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Has she been storing away his clothes? I don't know. He could have, for all I know, they could have been living in the same home. But the fact is, I think she was ready for this to happen. She's just, 
I think she's too shrewd to leave these matters to, to chance. And I think she'd been preparing for this possibility uh, for many years. But now this brings up a very, very good question. Remember, God has told Rebekah that Esau will serve Jacob, right? She's been told that. It is the will of God. Before these boys are even born, God is already ordained, predestined, already taught, told her the older will serve the younger. She knows that. So she goes by the room one day, and she hears Isaac's preparing to, to bless Esau. So here's the question, what should she do? What should she have done? Right? I mean, she comes up with her plan. Well, I can't let this happen. This is the, the will of God is for Jacob to receive the blessing. So what should she have done? Again, Jacob has been chosen by God to be heir of the promise. She knows it's God's will to receive the blessing. She knows what Isaac is conspiring to do is wrong. So the question becomes, kind of comes this. Is it okay for her to sin if it brings about God's will? That's a really good question, right? Because, she, again, put yourself in her shoes. She knows the will of God, and she knows what Isaac's about to do is not the will of God. So is it okay for her to come up with a plan that involves sin if it's going to bring about God's will? Well, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is a situation where you always have to rely... When you and I, and, and I say this situation, I'm saying if we find ourselves in something like this, this is where we always have to rely on God's Word. And you don't overcome a wrong with another wrong. Never. You don't overcome a wrong with another wrong. Romans 12, 21, uh, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what should she have done? Well... What she should have done is she should have went to her husband and she should have said, look, I heard what you're going to do. That's not right. Okay? And, and by the way, submission to authority, I don't care if it's, uh, if it's citizen to state, I don't care if it's child to parents or, or wife to husband, you never have to keep silent in the face of wrong. Okay? You, that does, submission to authority doesn't mean you have to be quiet. If somebody's doing something wrong, you feel free to tell them that. Okay? And so she should have been free to go to her husband and say, no, what you're about to do is, is wrong. And then having fulfilled her responsibility, she should have just stepped back and left it to God. Listen, Isaac could no more have blessed Esau than he could have lassoed the moon. Let me say it again. Isaac, there's no way he's going to bless Esau. No way, because it's not God's will. See, she should have just done what she should have done and stepped back and let God handle it instead of trying to make it happen herself. But see, her actions betray her lack of trust in, in God. By the way, this is a really good principle for you and I to live by. Let God be God. Let God be God. We always find ourselves sometimes in situations where you, you look at the Bible and think, man, I don't, I'm not sure what to do here. I can't find a good thing. Well, just let God be God. <clears throat> just let Him be God. You do what the Word says and get out of the way. But see, she couldn't commit to that. She thought, boy, if I don't do something, He's going to bless Esau. No, He could not have blessed. There's no way He could have blessed Esau. No way. Because it wasn't God's will. But she didn't trust God to bring that about. And so she thought... She had to do it herself. She couldn't just let God 
be God. Now this brings us to scene three, which I'm calling the big lie. Verses 18 through 20. This is Jacob. So he went into his father. He said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly? In other words, how did you kill the the deer or whatever so quickly? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now, I'm not sure what Jacob really planned to say when he went in that room. But I can tell you, once he committed, he committed 100%. The boy lied, and he lied, and he lied, and he, and he lied some more. And of all things, he just, the big caveat, he just brings God right into it, right? Oh, the Lord blessed me, right? So he went, once he sold out, he, he went into it. Look at verses 21 to 27. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So you can tell he's got some doubts, right? He said, come over here and let me touch you. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. I'm going to be honest with you. This is pathetic. This is really pathetic. I don't know how... I want you to think about this. Now, Isaac, for some reason, just seems to be particularly vulnerable right now to deception. Okay? We're looking at this and thinking, man, come on. It's his voice, right? I mean, you know, wake up, Isaac. So, the point is, why is he so vulnerable? Okay? Well, first of all, he's trying to overrule God. So, God might very well... The Bible tells us God will bring a great delusion, so they'll believe a what? A lie. So, so God may be involved in this in some, because he's trying to overrule God. But I think his vulnerability is a result of several things. As I said, let's face it, he's old, right? So his eyes are dim, his senses are dullest. I mean, he can't tell goat's hair from human hair. He can't tell Vincent from goat. I mean, he, his senses are, are definitely, uh, uh, they're not as sharp as they used to be. But I remember, he's also in a hurry. Don't forget that. He wants to get this done and over with before, some, before Jacob or Rebecca or somebody finds him out. This is a secret meeting. He wants to get it done. And that, that tell, listen, don't ever do things in haste. That's another good principle. When you do things in a hurry, you, your judgment sometimes goes out the window. And I think all of these things contributed to, uh, to his deception. By the way, it's a really sad commentary. A man of God... A man of God is basically led by his ears, by his taste, and finally smelled the garment. He's being led by his nose. Y'all see that? The man of God is being just led like any, like an animal, by what he sensed, what he, what he heard, what he tasted. And that, that, that is a very sad commentary on his life. In the end, don't forget this. If he'd had both sons in the room like he was supposed to, if he had called the family like he was supposed to, 
that he could have never been deceived. This would have never have happened in this way, right? But again, he's trying to be deceived and he, or trying to be deceptive, and he ends up being deceived. So finally, verses 28 to 29, he gives the blessing. He says this, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and of plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, there's the blessing. Now we get to scene four, which I've titled The Aftermath. Verses 30 to 37. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also had prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. You see, this... This blessing thing is difficult for us to understand, but I can tell you, once it went out, you didn't just pull it back. You didn't say, well, I just made a mistake. No, once you blessed, once it was spoken, it was done. And Isaac is saying, it's, it's done. There's nothing I can do about it. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, your brother has came, came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob, which means cheater or deceiver or supplanter? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then is left for you? This is what we mentioned earlier, right? See, this is what he intended to give all of it to Esau and have absolutely nothing left for, for Jacob. That was his intention from the very beginning. And that's kind of the ironic part of this, right? In trying to override the will of God. He knew what the will of God was. He tries to override the will of God and give everything to Esau. He ends up giving everything to Jacob. Now there is nothing left for him to give to his favorite son. Verses 38 to 40. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said, Now this is a, I mean, this is about as bad a blessing as you can get, right? He's just, there's, I, I don't know what else he's supposed to say. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Again, it ain't much of a blessing as blessings go, but he had already given everything to, to Jacob. Scene 5, our final scene, which I'm calling A Price to Pay, verses 41 to 45. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of my mourning... The days of mourning for my father are approaching, so he thinks his father's going to die. Then I'll kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Remember, nothing secret, right? 
Somebody heard that. Somebody Esau's told somebody something. They go back and tell her. I mean, this whole thing's just you know, it's just a, it's just it's just the same thing. And so she hears about it. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? This is a this is a pretty ugly scene, especially as far as family goes. The, the Rebecca and Jacob are successful; they get what they wanted, but the price tag for their success is is pretty high. Rebecca loves this boy more than anything in the world. In fact, I'm I'm convinced she loves him more than she loves Isaac. But the price that she pays is she'll never see him again. He's going to leave. He's going to go up to Mesopotamia. He's going to spend 20 years up there working for Laban, her brother, and by the time he comes back, she'll be dead. As far as we know, they'll never see one another again. Sad, isn't it? The thing you love the most, you lose. And, and, and again, it's just it's a sad commentary. Jacob, of course, is alienated from his father. He's separated from his mother. His brother wants to kill him. He's got to leave, and, and again, this is a mama's boy. And he's got to leave and, and, and go to some place he's never been before, this family is in absolute ruins. Verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. These are the, these are the two wives that Esau had married. He's been married for 37 years to these two Canaanite Hittite women, and they made Isaac and Rebekah's wife, life just bitter. Um, and she said this, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? In other words, what she needs is to have Jacob sent away, and so she comes up with this premise to do it. Even now, she can't tell the truth to Isaac. She can't just go in and say, look, you know, we, 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 we deceived you, and now Esau wants to marry, uh, kill Jacob, I need to send him. She doesn't do any of that. She comes up with another uh, uh, deception, right, to get him sent away. And uh, she just can't be truthful and tell the real reason. So th- that, that marriage is a mess, okay? Now, I want to close. i got about 10 minutes left. I want to close with something here. And I want to talk about something that this chapter illustrates very, very well. And that is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of, of man. You see, this story illustrates two principles really, really well. God's will will always be done. Okay, let me just say that to you. God's will will always be done. Nothing can thwart His will. Even when the same men and women who are bringing about that will are sinning and doing exactly what they want to do. Y'all see the two things here in this story? There's nobody in this story that's sympathetic. They're all doing things their own way, right? I hardly, I don't see anybody. I wonder what God would want us to do here. He, he's just, they're just conniving and they're, they're deceiving and they're secret. I mean, there's, there, there's just all this mess is going on. They're all sinning. They're doing exactly what they want to do. And God's will is just rolling on. It's just rolling on. You see, man's sin can never frustrate the will of God, but it, it can be used to fulfill it. 
And that's, this is not just taught, God will use man's sin to fulfill his will. And this is not just taught, you, you saw it in this chapter, it's taught, it's taught all throughout the Bible. I want to give you a couple of examples. One of my favorites. This is Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. This is God speaking. He says this, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy and to put an end to many nations. I love that. You talk about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It's right there. God is saying, this Assyrian army, a bunch of pagans, I send them against a godless nation. Y'all see that? I dispatch them. They are the rod of my anger. I'm using them to inflict judgment on another country. But then he says, that's not what they got in mind. In other words, that Assyrian, he's not sitting there thinking, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. No, he's sitting there saying, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. Everybody see that? How, how can that both be true? In fact, look at the first words. Woe to the Assyrian. He's going to pay for his sin. So he's doing exactly what he wants to do, yet God's will is being 100% done. That's the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of, of man. Genesis 50. We'll see this later in our study. And we all know this story. Um, Joseph. Joseph's brothers hating. Um, Jacob, well, we won't get too far into what Jacob does, but Joseph's brothers hating. They want to murder him. They dig a pit and throw him into it. They sell him into slavery. He gets into Egypt, and, and, and Potiphar's wife uh, uh, accuses him of rape, and he gets thrown into prison for two years. You go through that story, and people are just sinning and sinning and sinning, doing exactly what they want to do. But years later, Joseph's brothers come to him to have to buy food, and he reveals himself, and this is what he says, As for you, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. You meant evil. You, you were sinning. You were doing exactly what you want to do, but God was using that to turn something good. Sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. Acts four, twenty-seven to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your plan, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In the crucifixion of Jesus, you got Herod killing all the babies. You got Pontius Pilate turning him over to the Roman soldiers. You got the Jews saying crucify him. You got the Roman soldiers killing him. You got everybody doing exactly what they want to do. But then the Bible says they were doing what God had predestined to take place. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. God's will is always going to be done. Now, Let's make sure we're clear about this. God never makes us sin in order to achieve His purposes. Let me say it again. God never makes anybody sin in order to achieve His purposes. And by the way, when we do sin, He doesn't regard our sin any less of a sin just because He uses it to bring about His will. You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card because somehow God's will ended up getting done uh, anyway. You see, when you look at this chapter, and you look at Rebekah, and you look at Isaac, and you look at Esau, and you look at Jacob, their sins are not glossed over. 
Nobody excuses it. They're all guilty. They're all responsible for what they did. And by the way, they suffer consequences. But God's will is accomplished regardless of their sin or in spite of their sin. And by the way, it always is. God's will, I don't know how He does it because I'm not God. But you cannot thwart His will. Now, by the way, had they all acted in obedience, God would have employed some other method to bless Jacob. Like I said, Isaac could no more have... have uh, Isaac could no more have blessed Esau than he could have lassoed the moon because it, it was not going to happen. Now, you may ask, how would he have done it? I got no clue. I don't know how he would have done it, but he, but, but he wasn't... He, he did, everybody with me? I can't even say he didn't have the... I don't know because I'm not God. I'm just saying God's will is always going to happen. When he says it, I don't care what men do. They cannot stop it. They can't thwart it. But he never makes them do anything for it to happen. God didn't create a situation where Rebecca had to sin. She had a choice. And as Christians, we never have to sin even to bring about God's will. Please keep, always remember that. What Rebecca did was not right. And, she, and that was pure sin, and she, is caught, she was responsible for that, and she paid for it. We, God never asks us, oh yeah, you've got to go tell this little lie to make sure that this happens, or it's okay to cheat here to make sure that this... No. No, we always are responsible for obeying His Word, walking in His ways. So if we do sin, know this, we are responsible for our sin, not God. God will allow it to happen. Sometimes He will stop. Remember the story of Abimelech and Abraham, and God said, I stopped you from sleeping with her. Remember that? Sometimes God will step in and stop us, but then sometimes He'll allow it. And sometimes He will use it to accomplish His will, but He never, ever necessitates it or requires it. That's on us. So don't think that somehow I can get away with it just because it's bringing about God's will. That's not the way it works. Next week, we turn to the continuation of this soap opera of a family. Um, I, I, from here on out, it just it, it, it gets really good. Well, the drama's good, the, the, uh, the happenings are kind of sad, but next week we'll turn to, to Genesis 28, and we'll talk, we will we'll, uh, talk about Jacob's ladder, uh, Jacob's vision, and what that means, and uh, some really, really good stuff. Let's pray. Father.